0: Welcome back to five years of Public Address Radio on Radio Live. Some of the most interesting interviews come from the places you least expect, such as this one with American-born Perrin Rowland, who last year produced a fascinating book on the history of dining out in New Zealand. The biggest myth you dispel is that there were no restaurants in New Zealand before 1961, which is when the licensing laws changed, wasn't it? But you've got restaurants going back in here as far as the 1870s and Mm -hmm. before... 1860s, 1850s. And, I mean, far from the meat and three veg that seemed to dominate at least our perception of of restaurants um, throughout that time, we had some amazing fare, didn't we, on offer?
1: Very, very French, very continental, very international.
0: Talk us through the development of of the New Zealand restaurant briefly and, and for those...
1: Um, well, the restaurant was imported like colonialism. So with colonial arrivals, they brought concepts of the restaurant with them. So there was real no development like there was in France, because from France the restaurant was initially a soup, and then it developed into this very complicated business. So when the restaurant came to New Zealand, it came as the business. Um, The historical record in New Zealand tends to start around 1840, but I wouldn't be surprised to find documents in Russell that have restaurants in the 1830s. This was really unusual, because there weren't that many restaurants outside of Paris before the sort of late 19th century. So this is showing that actually New Zealand is extraordinarily modern and well connected. That concept continues up into the 20th century. Um, People imported Really sophisticated equipment to run these restaurants. They had really sophisticated stoves, champagne glasses, butter dishes, heavy silverware, fine china, linen. I mean, to run a restaurant, you need more than just customers. You need, you know, paper printers, candlestick makers, launderers, butchers. I mean, you need a whole industry behind you in order to set this up. So restaurants are really a sign of an urban, a level of urban development in New Zealand. So let's, (laughs) let's whip
0: through what happened. Um, and the, the Depression, there was the, the wowsers that were trying to stop people drinking, the temperance movement, all this sort of stuff, prohibition. Um, did that effectively shut down restaurants for 50 Quite the years? opposite.
1: It probably resulted in more restaurants because what had happened is it divided the wets from the drives. And so the wets needed a place to dine out and sort of smuggle booze under their sl- shirts and their sleeves and then their handbags, and the drives needed to sort of eat out away from everybody else's drinking. So you saw the development of vegetarian restaurants, all these fads, these um, vegetarian restaurants, how to like run Saturday. while eating yeah. raw fruit diets. Um muscle men diet places, um, as well as de- dainty tea rooms. Dainty food was very popular. And these were real restaurants. It's hard to conceive now that a tea room is a restaurant, but they were thought of and described and shared as restaurants. I was going
0: to say, it's not hard to conceive of the fact they might have raw food uh, restaurants and um, dainty food restaurants. I know, and it's like L.A. Like that. That's just <laughs> like now, isn't it? Really, yeah. um, a
1: little molecular gastronomy in the 1930s.
0: At what point did we get this reputation for the stodgy, the Co. kind of (laughs) meat and three veg, boring, boring meal? When did that come around?
1: It was a transnational trend. Everybody's food in the 1950s sucked. (laughs) Look,
0: it's a lovely book. It's got, as we were saying, it's got some um, some great, uh, some great uh, menu, uh, you know, uh, reproductions of the menus and things like that. And there was one um, little quote that I loved in there. Um, Can you remember what it was? Oh, here we go. Mixing champagne and cocktails in Camberay cuddle cubicles. Respectable restaurant by day, the Dixieland morphed into a temple of jazz at night for Auckland's frivolous flappers and effeminate nincompoops. (laughs) Uh, That's from the New Zealand Truth 1926. Sounds like they haven't changed much over the years. No, they're still censoring, aren't they? (laughs) We're never short of a quirky story or two here at Public Address Radio, such as the time our producer and sometime reporter Tom Watts went to his local cat show.
2: My interest in cat shows was piked when I saw my friend Kate using her cordless drill. I asked her where she got it from, and she told me that her cat won it for her in a competitive cat show. So I went in search of the mystical local cat show and happened across the Cats Incorporated 9th birthday party show.
1: My name's Marianne Cowan, I'm from Hamilton, New Zealand, and this is Portrait Jewel of the Nile.
2: Do you have other cats, or is this, is this the one cat?
1: No, 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 we, um, we breed. This has been um. our 50 year breeding, so we have quite a few at home. We have a few um, D sex cats, which are just our um, pets, house pets, basically. Um, some of them are retired. We actually breed totally in our house. We don't have it outside cages
2: or anything like most breeders do. We only have three breeding queens, that's three females, and one tomcat. So we do it totally... For the love of cats. It's a bit of a madhouse sometimes, but yeah, lots of fun. And because there are points and prestige at stake, the person judging has to be a real expert.
3: Okay, I'm Sandy Mackay. I'm the director of Judges for Cats Incorporated. Uh, I've been judging for both Cats Incorporated and the New Zealand Cat Fancy since 1986.
2: So you, you, you were a breeder of cats? Yes. Um what did you breed?
3: Well, I've been breeding since 1976, Mm. and I have bred Persians, Exotics, Himalayans, British, Scottish Fold, Long Hair Fold.
2: And do you have a favourite cat? Black Persian. Black Persian. Does that mean when you're when you're judging Black Persians, you're kind of more likely to kind of maybe sneak them in? I'm
3: inclined to be harder.
2: How does that work?
3: Inclined to be harder because. um, on the, well the Persian, exotic and Himalayan are all on the same breed type and I'm inclined to be a little bit harder in the breed I breed. Here today judging, that goes right out of your head. Your color preference, your breed preference doesn't even enter your head. You pull the cat out and your fingers tell you the good points and the bad points as you judge it. I mean, I do not like red cats. Many a time i put red cats best in show, because they've happened to fit the standard the best on the day of what had been presented.
2: How does one become a, a, a judge of cats?
3: You've got to breed for five years, then you have to go and feel every breed. Not just the good ones you see at a show, you go around cat and you feel from the, all of the faults for that breed right the way through. And then you go on the floor and you go through the process. After
0: seeing the tragedy associated with natural and man-made disasters, it's nice to see that life can eventually sometimes return to normal. While the memories of the past remain, as I found out when I visited Bandarache in Indonesia to investigate life five years on from the Boxing Day tsunami.
4: Aceh has their own beauty. You know, we have a greater culture, great culture, beautiful island, and then we have, uh, you can enjoy the history dated long time ago and also we have uh, tsunami tourism and I believe that you cannot find in other places. What I mean tsunami tourism, that will be another icon of our tourism. So by h- coming to Aceh, you can enjoy the beauty, the nature and also you can learn how tsunami happened in Achei and on how our people survived and then how Achei people get resilient during the tsunami. So that will be another attraction when you come to Aceh. even you can talk to the people who are affected during tsunami. You know, uh, tragedy has brought a significant impact to Aceh people. You know, it's very, it's very hard to tell that uh, many people lost their members of families. You know, today we still experience the tragedy. For example, there is still our member of family, you know, feeling the, the missing of their family's member. In Bandar Aceh.
0: in fact, it's hard to find anyone who wasn't affected by the tsunami. One person who knows that feeling more than most is Totok, a local tour operator.
5: My name Toto, from Bandache. Yeah, before tsunami, we have a travel agent also. But when tsunami came, everything was gone. My son, uh, my daughter, yeah, we left two, me and my wife, all uh, only. And then my office also broken everything was lost so with uh,
0: many people say um, I think even you said uh, when you look at Bandarache now it's better than it was before you know there's new roads big airport but you lost your children many people lost their children is that pain still there in, in Bandarache? Uh, yeah there was maybe
5: one year or two year after the tsunami, they lost the spirit of life. It's showed that. It. But after that, many visitors, uh, many volunteers from overseas come to build a, uh, capacity building, some of them. And then they rebuild the houses, they build, uh, they, uh, they build the road or something like that. And Ibanda looks nice city. And then, so, many of them, that can make uh, the spirit of life, spirit of uh, how how to go the future.
1: After the break, more of the best of five years of Public Address Radio.